Uh, good evening, everybody. We are in Pasha Balotacha, um, which is is become my favorite parish in the Torah for no other reason that it's, uh, which I mentioned to my Rashi Shu, which was uh, just before this, that it is the uh, parsha which Rav Soloveitchik wrote and delivered one of the most powerful droshes that tells of the human side of, of Moshe Rabbeinu that hopefully we will see a little bit into. But it is a parsha that seemingly has lots of disparate parts unconnected to one another. And as you, we go through it, you will see um, a lot of these uh, seemingly unconnected themes that become quite <coughs> quite powerful when you can appreciate exactly what's behind them. Okay, but let's start with a, a bunch of nice new ideas for the parsha. So the beginning of the parsha, and I, I'm going to bring all the text in here, but I'm going to, I'm going to use the, the original text in front of me. Parsha begins with the Dea Hashem El Moshe Lemo. So Hashem said to Moshe, Daber la Aaron, Vamata la Balotchala Nerot, and Mupne Benora, Yerushivata Nerot. So tell him when he lights the candles, um, when he goes up to light the candles, he's going to light the seven candles. And it goes on, it's the laws of uh, the lighting of the menorah. The, the interesting thing about this is it's got seemingly absolutely nothing to do with what's happening at this point in time. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unrelated, it's like out of nowhere. The menorah is something that we saw in Seif of Ayikra. Um, there's absolutely no reason to put it over here. And why is it doing it? So Rashi deals with this particular question. It says, So at the end of last week's parasha, it was last week's parasha is the longest parasha in the Torah. And the reason it's so long is you, it tells of the first 12 days of the operating of the, of the Mishkan, that every day a different, tri, a, a different prince from each tribe would bring an offering in the dedication of the, temp, of the, of the Mishkan. And that's how last week's parsha ends. And then straight from it, we go into uh, this week's parsha when it starts talking about the, um, the lighting of the menorah. Now, what on earth does one have to do with the other? So the simple answer, we, when we read parshas, we almost read them as a standalone. Like, oh, this is parsha, but look, what's it got to do with it? Next week's like a new, it's like a new, it's like a new book. It's as if like it's got no connection to this week's book. But Rashi is saying it's, it's intricately connected. So what's the connection? So he says as follows. So when he saw last week, so the 12 tribes come. Now, B'nai Levi, the Levi'im, as much as we talk them, they're not really a tribe because tribes <coughs> had two, two characteristics that would define them as tribes and, that in, and neither of them are that they were descendants from Yaakov, that they were sons of Yaakov. So, for example, Ephraim and Manasseh are tribes, but they are not descendants of Yaakov. The Yaakovs, they're not uh, children of Yaakov. They're Yaakov's grandchildren. So, the, the prerequisites are, one, is that they, they have an army, an operating army, that will fight for and in time defend the land of Israel. And two, they inherit land in, the, in, in Israel. They, 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 their tribe gets a, a portion. Tribe of Levi are completely dedicated to the temple so they don't get land and they don't serve in the army so when it comes to the dedication of the mishkan the 12 tribes come and they give a dedication but the tribe of levi doesn't give a dedication why because it's not a tribe so says rashi when aaron saws aaron the koengado he's the guy who's going to be operating in the mishkan he's going to be there <coughs> all the time 
And now, the first days, 12 days of operation, you know, day number one, tribe of Yudah, Nachshon bin Aminadav, he comes, he offers a whole big fanfare, a whole big parade, the tribe of Yudah is their day. The next day is the day of, uh, I think it was, uh, not Shimon, it's Zvulun. And then Zvulun has his all and each and every day. And for 12 days, Aaron's sitting there, watching. He's, he doesn't get involved, his tribe doesn't get involved, and he feels uh, a bit uh, bad about it. He says, Amalo HaKadosh Baruch Hu don't feel bad. Says, don't stress because you in time will come to light the menorah. Now what on earth does it, what is coming to light the menorah got to do with, uh, with uh, feeling bad? So the Ramban has an interesting question here because the term that it's the Chanukah, it is the, uh, the lighting, uh, the, the dedication of the Mishkan. And the Ramban says that this is actually referring to the festival of Hanukkah. That your descendants will once again re-inaugurate, re-induct the, the, uh, the Mishkan in the times of Hanukkah. That's what the Ramban says. But what Rashi over here is talking about is that you, yours is greater than theirs. Theirs is a once-off. Yours is one that you do every day. The lighting of the menorah. You do it every day. They've got, you know, their... Highlight reel of their life will be their one day event that they had. You have a daily event. So that's one thing that uh, perhaps <coughs> one message that we'll get out of this is that sometimes the mundanity of everyday life, of being able to be involved with something daily, sometimes we think oh, we, we're waiting for the highlights. So our life, if you look back in your life, you remember your, your birthdays, your weddings, your marriages, your bar, your bar mitzvahs, your whatever the case might be. But the mundanities are where the greatness is. The greatness of Aaron was doing something mundane as light and menorah on a day-to-day basis. He did 365 days a year, whereas the uh, tribe of Judah had one day in their lifetime. And it was only one. And don't, don't dismiss. But I think another lesson that comes out of this, and, and this is something that uh, we all um, I think uh, fall prey to is so often we are in the situation where we look at what others have and somehow dismiss that which we have. That Aaron sits there and looks at what's happened with Bnei So what do they do? You know, all of them offering and what have, I, I've got nothing. So Hashem sort of refocuses Aaron. So what are you talking about? You 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 you're doing this every day. Like you you are so focused on what everybody else has that you lose complete focus with that which you have. And that is going to be something you, something that we all struggle with. But it's going to be something that's going to be a theme that comes through the Pasha. Because it's going to juxtapose the, the personalities of Aaron with the personality of Moshe. But what we see over here is Aaron is feeling incredibly despondent. Because instead of being able to see the great opportunities and gifts that he has got. He looks at what everybody else has and feels insecurities of the fact that he doesn't have what they have. And that is something that, uh, dare I say, we, are all, we all struggle with. Of not being able to appreciate and uh, value that which we have, because we, um, because we are so busy looking elsewhere. So that's the first lesson from the parsha. Second one I want to do is uh, an interesting thing. We uh, we did this actually. This Rashi, we did this uh, medrash with um, with the Gemara, with the Rashi show a little bit earlier. And um, so what comes from this week's parsha is uh, when we open up the Aaron's by Hebin Saron comes out of this week's parsha. But just before Bahib bin Saron, it says, They marched from the mountain of the Lord a distance of three days, and the Ark of the Covenant traveled in front of them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. So the Medrash says as follows, brought down by, Tosfa is brought down by a number of different commentaries. It says, They fled as fast as a child fleeing from school. 
So the, the Gemara understands this, that this was a terrible avaira that they did. When they left Har Sinai, it says, They traveled, from, they marched from the mountain of Hashem. So the Medrash is not saying that it's, it's as if the school bell went out and the kids bolted out of school. That's what happened on Har Sinai. When Hashem said, all right, we've been learning Torah, we've been here, we've developed the Mishkan, it's now time to move. And before he's even finished his sentence, B'nai Yisrael already bolted and started heading out. And that is something very distressing. But there's something similar that comes a little bit earlier in the Chumash. And that is when we, um, when we, cross, <coughs> when, when we cross the Red Sea and the Egyptians are all drowned in the Red Sea, the pastor comes and says, Moshe caused B'nai Israel to set out from the Sea of Reeds. They went on to the wilderness of Shur and they traveled for three days. So after they left, it doesn't say they left the Red Sea and traveled. It says Moshe made them leave the Red Sea. So, so Rashi picks up on this and says, what do you mean he made them? He says, he made them journey against their own will. Because the Egyptians had adorned their horses with ornaments of gold and silver and with precious stones. And the Israelites were finding these in the sea. She so said, what had happened when, when so B'nai Israel have just left Egypt. We had this very nervous state. The Egypt were bearing down on us from behind. And we stuck at the sea. Miracle happens. The, the ocean opens. We walk through it. And the Egyptians all get drowned. But... Says the Medjash, what happened is the chariots and all the jewels from the chariots, every wave brought a whole set of new of gold, diamonds, etc. And B'nai Israel were, were collecting them. But the problem is that every wave brought more jewels. So how much is enough? How many, how, how many gold pieces are enough? So, you know, so, you know wait another, it's like, it's like if, you, if you keep collecting, you'll, you'll, you'll never leave. And it got to a point that Moshe said, all right, guys, we've got to go. Says, no, no, like just one more wave, one more wave. And at some point, Moshe literally had to, you know, had to drag them out, kicking and screaming, because they couldn't stay there. So the the altar, the uh, not the altar, the Alshich, so the Alshich is a famous um, uh, Torah commentary that becomes one of like the, the A team of a city. So throughout uh, Jewish history, there've been lots of great rabbinim, but mo- very seldom have there been many great rabbinim in one place at one time. So, you know, you talk about the Rambam, but the Rambam lived in Egypt and Rashi lived in Worms and this one lived here and this one lived there. Like, you never have a group of rabbis, but a notable exception was in 15th, uh, 16th century uh, Sfat. Sfat was, uh, you know, it, it was this period of time that you had some unbelievable personalities there. So the ones that you might know, you have the Shulchan Aruch, the Rav Yosef Karo, you have the Arizal, who was the noted Kabbalist. You have Rav Shlomo Alkabetz, who was a no, also noted Kabbalist. He wrote a Lachadudi. And you had the Alshech. The Alshech was also a very Kabbalistic, but he wrote a commentary on the Torah. Um, and he says, the follows, you know, he says, you know what the problem we have over here? When B'nai Israel were given riches, they couldn't pull themselves away from it. They, they, they just couldn't because they were so, like every wave is another opportunity to gain more wealth. I can't leave. But when they're standing at Har Sinai and every day is another wave of more wisdom and, and a different kind of wealth, the spiritual wealth is there, they couldn't wait to get out of there. And, and, and that mindset is one that is very disturbing because what happens is that our focus on certain pleasures of the world is we are saying, when there's a great opportunity to benefit, how can we sacrifice that opportunity? But when there's another opportunity to benefit, we say, you know, not my shtick at this point in time. 
and 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 that that hypocrisy of the things that really value us we don't value and the things that don't really value us we 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 we, we can't get enough of there's a there's a there's a I think it's an Ebenezer. I'm going to quote it. It became a famous song by by uh, Avram Fried. It says, "Adam doego ibud damim, ve'eno doego ibud yamim." Man is frightened of losing money, but he's not frightened of losing time. Damim yamim ozrim no damim ozrim chozrim ve'eno mozrim. Money can come back, but it doesn't help. Time will come back. Time would help. But it doesn't come back. And that ability to see that when we have something to benefit and, and grab it, it should be the other way around. When it came to Harisinai, Moshe had to force us that now we, okay, you've been in the classroom, it's time to leave. We have to leave. We have to go to Eretz Israel. But when it came to, uh, to receiving all the wealth, then it says, all right, enough. And says, all right, fine, we've got enough, let's move on. So I'll just quote a, a piece from a beautiful drosha. So last week, uh, the Jewish people lost a, an incredibly great, uh, not only rabbi and leader, but orator, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who was, um, who was one of the big rabbinim in, uh, in, the, in the States. He was the chancellor, president of Yeshiva University, um, and a, a very noted Talmud Chacham, and wrote a book called Torah Mada, of the Resolution of Science in Torah. But he writes as follows. Do we not experience this attitude all too often in our lives? He's referring to on this, which I've just said, in our own society. All too frequently, we approach our religious obligations in a manner more belabored than beloved. Our observance lacks joy, it lacks love, it lacks inner attachment. We, whom this age of automation has given so much leisure, come to synagogue to worship and we begrudge the time we spend on prayer. We carefully monitor our sessions in the synagogue with our watch. Heaven forbid, lest services continue beyond the prescribed time. All this points to a lack of love, an absence of inner commitment, and therefore a religion which is joyless and unhappy. It is the approach of a child who flees from, flees from rather than, sorry, who flees from rather than to school. It is the grievous error of spiritual truancy. And this is indeed the first great catastrophe of any people. I, I think he, he's just, he's a, he was a master of beautiful words. But he says that's what's happened to our Judaism. That our spiritual connection has been one to how quickly can this be over. Let me, let me get through the obligations. Let me make sure that I'm finished with what I have to do. Without any love. But when it comes to the vanities of life, how can we find more time? So when, uh, when you're watching Netflix, we're like... How can I find more time to watch more Netflix? How, much, how much can I find more time to do the things that I get pleasure from? But the things that's supposed to be nurturing our souls, we can't wait to get out of them in time. And, and uh, I think we all can be a little bit guilty of that. All right, that's the second uh, point out of the Basha. The third one. Now, this is, a, this, this is one that uh, we all know. You know it reminds me of... Uh, so it says the um, there was a straight after the parish it says the people complaining wicked in the eyes in the ears of Hashem and Lord, the Lord heard and there was incense and the fire of the Lord broke out against them ravaging the outskirts of the camp that's all that parish says it says that they were complaining what it doesn't say is what they were complaining about like what was the issue so Rashi says the term 
And that's people who seek a pretext. They're looking for a reason to complain. They seek a pretext how to separate themselves following from Hashem. The problem with the people, it, they, they, they were complaining. So I heard one, someone said that, um, that they were, uh, you know why the Torah doesn't tell them what they're complaining about? Because whatever they told, it was just an excuse. People need a reason to complain. And that was the problem, is that you had this group of people who were looking for something that was wrong. So it's like the, the I think it's a Woody Allen sketch that the, uh, you know, the waiter goes up to the two Jews in the restaurant and says, uh, excuse me, uh, gentlemen, is anything okay? And that, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. You know, or to the, the beginning of any whore is my favorite. It says, you know, Jews in a restaurant, they're complaining to one another and says, you know, the food in this restaurant is absolutely awful. And the other one says, yes, and the portions are so small. And that, that, that's like, that's a Jewish persona of this complaining. That there's just, there's got to be something wrong. There can't be anything right. And, and, and that was the Avera. The Avera wasn't, you know, you know we, we, we dove into Hashem. And the davening to Hashem is to ask for the things that we want and we need in life. Which is another way of saying to Hashem, we don't have what we want and we believe we need in life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting that which you don't have. But the, the idea of just complaining for the sake of complaining. And, and, and I find within myself sometimes that you really want to come home at the end of the day and say, geez, did I have a rough day. You want, you, like, more often than not, I mean, when you speak to people, how, how, did, how did you sleep last night? Oh, did I sleep terribly? Like, they, nothing can be good. We, we find, somehow we are built to try and find what's wrong with the world. You know, the quote, uh, Rabbi David, David Aaron uses this as, I think it's from Rav Cook. He says, a missing tile syndrome. He says, if you go and you see a mosaic that has... Uh, has thousands and thousands of tiles in it and there's one tile missing you look at it and say oh, why is that why is that tile missing you're missing the hundreds of thousands but the, 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 this need to complain this need to find uh, issue with it is, is a terrible avaira and something that we really got to try find ways of you know not you know not looking to the not only the glass half empty but not looking at the world as such a bitter um, uh, disturbing place <coughs> All right, towards the end of the parasha, we have uh, one of the uh, six remembrances. So there are six, uh, six things that we are obligated to remember every day, to remember um, Shabbat, to remember the, uh, the golden calf, remember standing at Mount Sinai, remember Miriam, remember Amalek, and remember, I forgot the sixth one, which is quite ironic. It'll come to me, Miriam, Amalek. Golden calf, anyway, irrelevant for now. So, what happens with Miriam? Why do we have to remember Miriam? Is that Miriam was uh, spoke Loshon Hora about Moshe, and the pasuk goes like this: "Vitidaber Miriam ba'Aron ba'Moshe." So Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moshe. Regarding a Kushat woman that Moshe had married, because he had married a Kushat woman. Is this woman Sipora or not? Is a bit of discussion within the within the commentaries. Um, and why is it mentioned now? Is Kushite a description of beauty or is it a nation? This also is a point of description. But one way or another, Miriam and Aaron were talking regarding her somehow unfavorably. So how do they answer? Did Hashem only speak to Moshe? No, Hashem spoke to us as well. And Hashem heard. 
So Rashi explains over here that what had happened is Moshe had actually separated from his wife. That he had become a, a unique kind of prophet. And as a result, he had to separate from his wife. And he didn't tell anyone about this. And Miriam got wind of the fact that they were separated. And Miriam says, hold on, Aaron, did you hear Moshe separated from his wife? So I don't understand. I'm a prophet. You're a prophet. We've never separated from our spouses. Why is Moshe? Who does Moshe think he is to separate from Hashem? And says, and Hashem heard. Ish Moshe anav me'od. And Moshe was incredibly humble. Mikol ha'adam ashe opne ha'adama. More than any man that has ever lived on earth. So Moshe, well, how does Moshe respond to this? So the answer is, Moshe doesn't respond to it. Why? Because he's the most humble man that's ever lived. So there's this accusation that Miriam has, <coughs> and she says to Aaron, and they speak about Moshe, how could you do this? What's Moshe's response? It's absolute silence. And, and it's one of the elements of criticism. And I suppose we are all on the receiving ends of criticisms. The ability to be silent and to not have to respond. There are times where we need to respond. And there are times where we are protecting. So like Moshe is unique that he doesn't respond. But sometimes maybe we respond, but not for our egos. We'll talk about this a little bit sh- shortly. But so often we stand and say, I need to stand up. I need to say something on principle. But really it's the ego. It's our inability to be able to just listen to the criticism and not have to defend ourselves. That if someone says something uh, harmful or harsh to us, uh, one of my rabbinim, Rav Noach Oluwek, says that criticism, or you know, you can call it uh, constructive criticism or critiques or you call it whatever you want, or complaints, are such unbelievable resources if you're able to somehow humble yourself to listen to them. So if I, if I, I remember when I first started giving droshes, one of the critics, I, I got two, remember two criticisms that I got at the beginning. One, I was too high energy off the pulpit. I used to yell, I used to scream, and, uh, and I still see with young rabbis, um, they, they think that the way to capture an audience's attention is by being overly energetic off the pulpit. And uh, that was me. And I remember when they were saying, and I said, I don't know what they're talking about, and most people like it, and I ignored it. And who are they to tell me? And the other one I remember was uh, the, actually a, a little bit later, I suppose I'd calmed a bit by then. And the accusation I got is that he, he, when he talks, he has his hands in his pocket. And that is such a not way to speak to an audience by having his hands in his pocket. And in both cases, I went straight onto the defensive and said, you know, you're going to tell me how to speak. They actually both made very good points. And in time, I've uh, developed, I would like to think this, speaking to the fact that I am not high energy and you do not need to be high energy to to capture an audience. You just need to, you know, find your own way. But the point is that at the time, the ego wouldn't let me listen. And sometimes we have to be able to push it aside that when there are people who criticize us to, A, to not take offense to it and to listen to the message and to be able to draw something from that message. And number two is to be able to learn, you know, is to be able to be humble in not having to feel a need to respond. And that was the greatness of Moshe. That leads into the second part. It's like, what is this concept of humility? Because being humble and being uh, modest um, are not the same things and I, I don't want to get caught up in definitions but self-effacing 
and modesty or humility are not the same thing. Self-effacing invariably means denying one's um, success or denying one's ability. And if you convince yourself of that, it is a terrible, uh, a terrible avail. Because Hashem has given you enormous amount of talent, enormous amount of ability to do great things. And if someone uh, compliments you on them or someone praises you for it, the ability to acknowledge that this is a God-given talent that you be given. Arrogance is thinking that you made this thing happen. That is your talent, it's your skill, it is your might that have brought this about. Where the concept of humility is acknowledging that Hashem has allowed you to perform these great things. That is what humility is. But the ability, now I just want to focus here on the Mishnah in Pekka Avot, where it talks about, it's, uh, about the concept of humility. So it says, Rav Liyavat Leviatas, um, Ish Yavne from Yavne said, Mo'od, Mo'od, Hava Shafel Ruach, Shitikvat Enoshrima. It says one should be exceedingly, exceedingly humble. It's not enough to say Mo'od. It says to be, it doesn't say it should be Shafel Ruach, it should be humble. It says you should be exceedingly, exceedingly humble. Why? Because the end of your life is worms. Now it's a bit, a bit morbid. I remember once um, a story of a, uh, it was of an aged care facility. Tamar shared this with me. That there was a, a very wealthy individual in the facility. And another individual who was, uh, who was quite poor. And, had, uh, and was of a, a lower class, let's just say. And the wealthy individual's family said we won't make sure that our father is nowhere near that guy we don't want him to associate with him he is of a different class and in time they both passed away and they're buried next to each other in the in the cemetery now the great irony and this is something that uh, australia does believe it or not this and israel does but it's not done all over the world and that is that we all get buried in the same plain black palm coffin you can't upgrade your coffin here. At the end of the day, we might all live different lives, but at the end of the day, we're all going to the same place, and we're all going to be six foot under. And that is why one should be humble, is because the toys that you accumulate in this world or the, 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 the things that you can accumulate have a very short life shelf, shelf life. And the things that really matter, you can't, you know, they're going to escort you but you can't quantify them in the same way. So that's why, according to Rabbi Leviatus, that's why you should be exceedingly humble. Now it says as follows. So how can a man be proud? Now just, I, I'd like to paraphrase this Rabbani Yonah. Rabbani Yonah was a, a fascinating individual. I think we've quoted him in the past. <coughs> but um, he was an individual who did enormous, he, 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 did, he wrote a book called the Sharei Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance. Because he was incredibly outspoken against the Rambam. The Rambam wrote a philosophical work that was quite controversial at the time. And the Rabbani Yonah walked all around uh, Europe telling people that this book had to be burnt. And at some point, the, the French authorities thought, you know, if we're burning some Jewish books, we might as well burn all of them. And, uh, and when Rabbani Yonah saw all these Jewish books going up in flame, he realized that this was a message from Hashem. And he repented and went to every pulpit and, uh, and recanted and, uh, f and, and asked for forgiveness that he had spoken out so harshly against the Rambam. But he says as follows, the Rambam has a general rule of uh, the, golden, uh, the golden mean, that in, in all character traits, one should never be an extremist. When it comes to uh, 
you know, spending money. You shouldn't be a spendthrift that wastes money willy-nilly. And you also shouldn't be a stingy. He says when it comes to being uh, aggressive, it uh, says cruel or, or merciful, you shouldn't be overly cruel. But, uh, but sometimes cruelty has its place. You know, if, if you go to war, you've got to have a certain level of cruelty there. You can't be kind. There are people, bad people out there. You've got to be cruel. On the flip side, you've got to be a rachaman. You've got to be a merciful individual. You can't, but you can't be merciful. If there's a criminals out there, there are murderers out there, you can't be merciful. And then you've got to show a, a certain level of, of cruelty. So you've got to be in the middle. He says, but there's one exception. And that is that of, of the ego and being humble. He says, when it comes to the ego, <coughs> we have to stay as far away from it as possible it says uh, let me find the exact quote over here it says man should grab the middle path uh, and and moderate trait yet this trait of haughtiness of, of ego of arrogance must be removed from oneself to the far extreme as there's no trait more problematic than it and most of sins of Torah depend on it and moreover it causes us to forget Hashem as it says in quotes the Pasuk, and your heart will grow haughty and you will forget Hashem. And this is what we learn here in the Mishnah and Perka Avot. Be very, very humble in spirit. So mean, what does it mean being very, very humble? To go to the extreme. Um, let's see, where is it? Sir? So I'm trying to find the exact line that I was looking for. So let me just read through it all. So, um, so the Talmud in in, in, in Gomorrah attracted so, so one said in excommunication. This is what, um, so I'm going to play the, put this outside. He said, when it comes to humility, the key is to be as humble as humanly possible and as not arrogant. You've got to stay away from arrogance as much as possible. Now, what is the key behind that? Now, I'd like to explain something that we see with regards to Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, was unique. That his prophecy, and this is what the Pasha, the Pasha continues, it says, and Moshe was, was, uh, was uh, more humble than all other people. And Hashem says to Miriam and Aaron, when I speak to you, quoting the Pasuk here, Hashem says to, the, to Miriam and Aaron, When I speak to you, it's through a, a dream or a vision. Because Moshe is not like that. When I speak to him, I speak to him face to face. My relationship with Hashem is different from my relationship um, with you guys. So the Rambam explains this in, in, in quite an interesting way. He says, what is the experience of prophecy? So if, if Hashem comes to speak to us, so it says over here, when he speaks to, Moshe and Aaron, when he speaks to Miriam and Aaron, it's, it's a vision. When he speaks to Moshe, it's face to face. So the Rambam exp explains that when Hashem comes to speak to you, you have this overall, this incredibly overwhelming spiritual experience that you realize that in the scheme of the world, you are nothing. Hashem is everything and you are absolutely nothing. And that experience crushes your whole personality. And so when you have that experience, you go into almost a, um, a fit. You, you shake. The Rambam says you come out shaking, shuddering. You're completely confronted because you've had this experience with Hashem. But Moshe Rabbeinu, when he spoke to Hashem, 
He went to he spoke to Hashem like I speak to you. Why was that the case? He says because Moshe was the most humble man ever. The humility that Moshe had was the thing that enabled him to have a relationship with Hashem. Because he realized that he was merely the vessel through which Hashem could operate. He had no independence as far as an ego. It was all I merely producing that to Hashem. I, how do I get up in the morning? Because Hashem gives me the strength. How do I stay motivated? How do I stay inspired? How do I feel when I'm depressed? Why? It is all Hashem working through me. That is the ultimate form of humility, is recognizing Hashem's hand in everything. And so humility necessitates when things happen, when things happen to us and our ego starts to come up and says, you did that to me? How dare you do that to me? That is the ego. And that, says the Gemara, is like worshiping Avodah Zorah. It's like you're worshipping idols because you're saying that this happened to you. You've taken Hashem out of the process. So let's look at like a lot of mitzvahs that come out of this. Like taking revenge, bearing a grudge. So I bear a grudge. I see a certain person walks in the room and my, my, my hair on my back goes up. Why? Ego. The only reason is ego. So it's, it's not the ego, it's the principle. No. When you say the principle, you are saying it is my ego hiding behind the principle. Because Hashem doesn't want you to stand on that principle. When you're fighting the battles of Hashem, you do not get angry. Angry is the ego. If you feel anger, it is because the need to assert your authority on the world is there. And that is the opposite of humility. Humility is, ah, but... Uh, what well, I should be a doormat. So the answer, and this is what Rabbani Yonah said. I don't want to bring the whole Rabbani Yonah. But Rabbani, you want to be a doormat? He says, what's wrong with being a doormat? Like, why not? So you're driving on the road and people keep cutting in front of you. So what? Is, is, is like, what's, what's the issue there? So, but if, if people take advantage of you, they'll just take more advantage of you. And then what? Like, what's the issue here? Get your ego out of the way. There's no place for ego. And the more you can do it, the better. Says the Rambam. That's what we just read. It says, in all areas of character traits, should be in the middle part. So we say you should have a little bit of an ego, but not too much of an ego. So Rambam says, no, you should get rid of your ego completely. Ah, so how do we ever stand up for injustice? How do we ever stand up uh, for things that are wrong? Isn't that anger? Isn't that thing driving us? So then we see, <coughs> we're going to read this in a few weeks' time, Pasha Pinchas. There are times when people have to stand up, but it's not because they're standing up for themselves. They're standing up for Hashem. And it is so difficult for all of us to be able to determine whether we are actually standing up for principle or we're standing up because of our ego. So one of the uh, beautiful lines brought out from the Kotzka, I'm going to paraphrase it. This is that, um, never trust somebody who tells you that, all, that their, their motives are pure. Trust somebody when he tells you his motives are not pure. But the more convinced you are that you are doing your whatever it is that you're doing because you believe in it and you are altruistic, you are what's called L'Shaim Shemaim, the greater the guarantee is that you're not L'Shaim Shemaim. You cannot be L'Shaim Shemaim and know it. You can only try to be L'Shaim Shemaim, but never know it. And that's, that's this whole idea of, of, of humility. It is the greatest character trait within the, in the Jewish, uh, entire Jewish gamut. The ability to acknowledge and recognize consistently that Hashem is the one that runs the world. And that it is His will. And if this is what happens, this is what happens. 
and to try and move our egos out of the way. And that was where Moshe's greatness was. Moshe never stands up for himself. When the accusation comes against Moshe, Moshe stays quiet. When the accusation comes against Hashem, Moshe is pretty willing to put up a fight. And we see that happen time and time again. So that's uh, in essence I've brought not, uh, I haven't even touched on every theme of the parasha, but I think um, a whole bunch of uh, interesting ideas regarding the parasha. Hope you've uh, been able to take some lessons from them. And I wish you all uh, Shabbat Shalom. And I look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Anyway, Shabbat Shalom everyone.